Section 47 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1 by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Johnson's Third Letter to Baretti, Anno Domini, 1762. Lord McCartney, obliging me, favoured me with a copy of the following letter in his own handwriting from the original, which was found by the present Earl of Bute among his father's papers to the right honourable the earl of bute my lord that generosity by which i was recommended to the favour of his majesty will not be offended at a solicitation necessary to make that favour permanent and effectual the pension appointed to be paid me at michaelmas i have not received and know not where or from whom i am to ask it I beg, therefore, that your lordship will be pleased to supply Mr. Wedderburn with such directions as may be necessary, which I believe his friendship will make him think no trouble to convey to me. To interrupt your lordship at a time like this, with such petty difficulties, is improper and unseasonable. But your knowledge of the world has long since taught you that every man's affairs, however little, are important to himself. Every man hopes that he shall escape neglect, and, with reason, may every man whose vices do not preclude his claim expect favour from that beneficence which has been extended to my lord, your lordship's most obliged and most humble servant, Samuel Johnson. Temple Lane, November the 3rd, 1762. Love and Marriage, I Tart 53 To Mr. Joseph Baretti at Milan, London, December 21st, 1762, Sir. You are not to suppose, with all your conviction of my idleness, that I have passed all this time without writing to my Baretti. I gave a letter to Mr. Beauclair, who, in my opinion and in his own, was hastening to Naples for the recovery of his health. Footnote. George Selwyn wrote, Topham Beauclair is arrived. I hear he lost ten thousand pounds to a thief at Venice, which thief, in the course of the year, will be at Cassiobury. The reference to this quotation I have mislaid. End of footnote. But he has stopped at Paris and I know not when he will proceed. Langton is with him. I will not trouble you with speculations about peace and war. The good or ill success of battles and embassies extends itself to a very small part of domestic life. We all have good and evil, which we feel more sensibly than our petty part of public miscarriage or prosperity. Footnote. Two years later he repeated this thought in the lines that he added to Goldsmith's Traveller, post under February 1766. I am sorry for your disappointment, with which you seem more touched than I should expect of a man of your resolution and experience to have been, did I not know that general truths are seldom applied to particular occasions, 
and that the fallacy of our self-love extends itself as wide as our interest or affections every man believes that mistresses are unfaithful and patrons capricious but he accepts his own mistress and his own patron we have all learned that greatness is negligent and contemptuous and that in courts life is often languished away in ungratified expectation but he that approaches greatness or glitters in a court imagines that destiny has at last exempted him from the common lot do not let such evils overwhelm you as thousands have suffered and thousands have surmounted but turn your thoughts with vigour to some other plan of life and keep always in your mind that with due submission to providence a man of genius has been seldom ruined but by himself footnote we may compare this with what old bentley said depend upon it no man was ever written down but by himself boswell's hebrides october the first seventeen seventy three and a footnote your patron's weakness or insensibility will finally do you little hurt if he is not assisted by your own passions of your love i know not the propriety nor can estimate the power but in love as in every other passion of which hope is the essence we ought always to remember the uncertainty of events there is indeed nothing that so much seduces reason from vigilance as the thought of passing life with an amiable woman and if all would happen that a lover fancies i know not what other terrestrial happiness would deserve pursuit but love and marriage are different states those who are to suffer the evils together and to suffer often for the sake of one another soon lose that tenderness of look and that benevolence of mind which arose from the participation of unmingled pleasure and successive amusement a woman we are sure will not always be fair we are not sure she will always be virtuous and man cannot retain through life that respect and assiduity by which he pleases for a day or for a month i do not however pretend to have discovered that life has anything more to be desired than a prudent and virtuous marriage therefore know not what counsel to give you if you can quit your imagination of love and greatness and leave your hopes of preferment and bridal raptures to try once more the fortune of literature and industry the way through france is now open Footnote. the preliminaries of peace between england and france have been signed on november the third of this year End of footnote. we flatter ourselves that we shall cultivate with great diligence the arts of peace and every man will be welcome among us who can teach us anything we do not know footnote of baretti's travels through spain etc johnson wrote to mrs thrale that baretti's book would please you all i made no doubt 
i know not whether the world has ever seen such travels before those whose lot it is to ramble can seldom write and those who know how to write very seldom ramble piozzi letters volume one page thirty two and a footnote for your part you will find all your old friends willing to receive you reynolds still continues to increase in reputation and in riches miss williams who very much loves you goes on in the old way miss cotterell is still with mrs porter miss charlotte is married to dean lewis and has three children mr levitt has married a street-walker but the gazette of my narration must now arrive to tell you that bathurst went physician to the army and died at the havana i know not whether i have not sent you word that huggins and richardson are both dead footnote huggins had quarrelled with johnson and beretti croker's boswell page one two three note see also post seventeen eighty in mr langton's collection end of footnote when we see our enemies and friends gliding away before us let us not forget that we are subject to the general law of mortality and shall soon be where our doom will be fixed for ever i pray god to bless you and am so your most affectionate humble servant samuel johnson write soon a dedication to the queen i tart fifty four johnson's life of collins anno domini seventeen sixty three in 1763 he furnished to the poetical calendar published by Fawkes and Wotey a character of Collins, asterisk, which he afterwards engrafted into his entire life of that admirable poet. Footnote. Cooper, writing in 1784 about Collins, says, Of whom I did not know that he existed till I found him there, in the lives of the poets, that is to say. Southey's Cooper, end of footnote. In the collection of lives which he wrote for the body of English poetry formed and published by the booksellers of London. His account of the melancholy depression with which Collins was severely afflicted and which brought him to his grave is, I think, one of the most tender and interesting passages in the whole series of his writings. Footnote. To this passage, Johnson, nearly twenty years later, added the following. Such was the fate of Collins, with whom I once delighted to converse, and whom I yet remember with tenderness. End of footnote. He also favoured Mr. Houle with the dedication of his translation of Tasso to the Queen, asterisk which is so happily conceived and elegantly expressed that I cannot but point it out to the peculiar notice of my readers. Footnote. Madam, to approach the high and the illustrious has been in all ages the privilege of poets, and though translators cannot justly claim the same honour, yet they naturally follow their authors as attendants, and I hope that in return for having enabled Tasso to diffuse his fame through the British dominions, I may be introduced by him to the presence of your majesty. 
tasso has a peculiar claim to your majesty's favour as follower and panegyrist of the house of este which has one common ancestor with the house of hanover and in reviewing his life it is not easy to forbear a wish that he had lived in happier time when he might among the descendants of that illustrious family have found a more liberal and potent patronage had this been the fate of tasso he would have been able to have celebrated the condescension of your majesty in nobler language but could not have felt it with more ardent gratitude than madam your majesty's most faithful and devoted servant boswell boswell's youthful compositions anno domini seventeen sixty three this is to me a memorable year for in it i had the happiness to obtain the acquaintance of that extraordinary man whose memoirs i am now writing an acquaintance which i shall ever esteem as one of the most fortunate circumstances in my life though then but two-and-twenty young though boswell was he had already tried his hand at more than one kind of writing in seventeen sixty one he had published anonymously an elegy on the death of an amiable young lady with an epistle from menalcas to lycidas edinburgh donaldson the elegy is full of such errors as thou lived thou led but is recommended by a puffing preface and three letters one of which is signed j b about the same time he brought out a piece that was even more impudent it was an ode to tragedy by a gentleman of scotland edinburgh donaldson seventeen sixty one price sixpence in the dedication to james boswell esq he says i have no intention to pay you compliments to entertain agreeable notions of one's own character is a great incentive to act with propriety and spirit but i should be sorry to contribute in any degree to your acquiring an excess of self-sufficiency i own indeed that when to display my extensive erudition i have quoted greek latin and french sentences one after another with astonishing celerity or have got into my old hock humour and fallen a raving about princes and lords knights and geniuses ladies of quality and harpsichords you with a peculiar comic smile have gently reminded me of the importance of a man to himself and slyly left the room with the witty dean lying open at p p clerk of this parish swift's works i sir who enjoy the pleasure of your intimate acquaintance know that many of your hours of retirement are devoted to thought the ode is serious he describes himself as having a soul by nature formed to feel grief sharper than the tyrant's steel and bosom big with swelling thought from ancient laws remembrance brought in the winter of seventeen sixty one sixty two he had helped as a contributor and part editor in bringing out a 
collection of original poems boswell and erskine's letters page twenty seven his next publication also anonymous was the club at newmarket written as the preface says in the newmarket coffee-room in which the author being elected a member of the jockey club had the happiness of passing several sprightly good-humoured evenings it is very poor stuff in the winter of seventeen sixty two sixty three he joined in writing the critical strictures mentioned post june the twenty fifth seventeen sixty three just about the time that he first met johnson he and his friend the honourable andrew erskine had published in their own names a very impudent little volume of the correspondence that had passed between them of this i published an edition with notes in eighteen seventy nine together with boswell's journal of a tour to corsica messrs thomas de la rue and company though then but two-and-twenty i had for several years read his works with delight and instruction and had the highest reverence for their author which had grown up in my fancy into a kind of mysterious veneration Footnote. boswell in seventeen sixty eight in the preface to the third edition of his corsica described the warmth of affection and the dignity of veneration with which he never ceased to think of mr johnson End of footnote. by figuring to myself a state of solemn elevated abstraction in which i supposed him to live in the immense metropolis of london mr gentleman a native of ireland who passed some years in scotland as a player and as an instructor in the english language a man whose talents and worth were depressed by misfortunes footnote. in the garrick correspondence there is a confused letter from this unfortunate man asking garrick for the loan of five guineas he had a scheme for delivering dramatic lectures at eton and oxford but he added my externals have so unfavourable an appearance that i cannot produce myself with any comfort or hope of success garrick sent him five guineas he had been a major in the army an actor and dramatic author for the last seven years of his life he struggled under sickness and want to a degree of uncommon misery gentleman's magazine for seventeen eighty four page nine five nine end of footnote a man whose talents and worth were depressed by misfortunes had given me a representation of the figure and manner of dictionary johnson as he was then generally called footnote as great men of antiquity such as scipio africanus had an epithet added to their names in consequence of some celebrated action so my illustrious friend was often called dictionary johnson from that wonderful achievement of genius and labour his dictionary of the english language the merit of which i contemplate with more and more admiration Boswell in like manner we have hermes harris pliny melmoth demosthenes taylor persian jones 
Abyssinian Bruce, Microscope Baker, Leonidas Glover, Hesiod Cook, and Corsica Boswell. End of footnote. And during my first visit to London, which was for three months in 1760, Mr. Derrick the Poet, footnote, he introduced Boswell to Davies, who was the immediate introducer, end of footnote, who was gentleman's friend and countryman, flattered me with hopes that he would introduce me to Johnson, an honour of which I was very ambitious. But he never found an opportunity which made me doubt that he had promised to do what was not in his power, till Johnson some years afterwards told me, Derrick, sir, might very well have introduced you. I had a kindness for Derrick, and am sorry he is dead. In the summer of 1761, Mr. Thomas Sheridan was at Edinburgh, and delivered lectures upon the English language and public speaking to large and respectable audiences. I was often in his company, and heard him frequently expatiate upon Johnson's extraordinary knowledge, talents, and virtues, repeat his pointed sayings, describe his particularities, and boast of being his guest, sometimes till two or three in the morning. At his house I hope to have many opportunities of seeing the sage, as Mr. Sheridan obligingly assured me I should not be disappointed. Johnson's quarrel with Sheridan, I type 54, Sheridan's pension, Anno Domini, 1763. When I returned to London in the end of 1762, to my surprise and regret I found an irreconcilable difference had taken place between Johnson and Sheridan, a pension of two hundred pounds a year had been given to Sheridan. Johnson, who, as has been already mentioned, thought slightingly of Sheridan's art, upon hearing that he was also pensioned, exclaimed, What? Have they given him a pension? Then it is time for me to give up mine. Whether this proceeded from a momentary indignation, as it if it were an affront to his exalted merit that a player should be rewarded in the same manner with him, or was the sudden effect of a fit of peevishness, it was unluckily said, and indeed cannot be justified. Mr. Sheridan's pension was granted to him not as a player, but as a sufferer in the cause of government when he was manager of the Theatre Royal in Ireland, when parties ran high in 1753. Footnote. On March the 2nd, 1754, not 1753, the audience called for a repetition of some lines which they applied against the government. Diggs, the actor, refused, by order of Sheridan the manager, to repeat them. Sheridan would not even appear on the stage to justify the prohibition. In an instant, the audience demolished the inside of the house and reduced it to a shell. Walpole's Reign of George the Second, and Gentleman's Magazine, Volume 24, page 141. Sheridan's friend, Mr. S. White, says, Miscellanea Nova, page 16, 
in the year seventeen sixty two sheridan's scheme for an english dictionary was published that memorable year he was nominated for a pension he quotes a letter from mrs sheridan dated november the twenty ninth seventeen sixty two in which she says i suppose you must have heard that the king has granted him a pension of two hundred pounds a year merely as an encouragement to his undertaking End of footnote. and it must also be allowed that he was a man of literature and had considerably improved the arts of reading and speaking with distinctness and propriety besides johnson should have recollected that mr sheridan taught pronunciation to mr alexander wedderburn whose sister was married to sir harry erskine an intimate friend of lord bute who was the favourite of the king Footnote. horace walpole describes lord bute as a man that had passed his life in solitude and was too haughty to admit to his familiarity but half a dozen silly authors and flatterers sir henry erskine a military poet home a tragedy writing parson etc memoirs of the reign of george the third end of footnote and surely the most outrageous we will not maintain that whatever ought to be the principle in the disposal of offices a pension ought never to be granted from any bias of court connection mr macklin indeed shared with mr sheridan the honour of instructing mr wedderburn and though it was too late in life for a caledonian to acquire the genuine english cadence yet so successful were mr wedderburn's instructors and his own unabating endeavours that he got rid of the coarse part of his scotch accent retaining only as much of the native woodnote wild footnote native woodnotes wild milton's l'allegro line one three four into footnote as to mark his country which if any scotchman should affect to forget i should hardly despise him notwithstanding the difficulties which are to be encountered by those who have not had the advantage of an english education he by degrees formed a mode of speaking to which englishmen do not deny the praise of elegance hence his distinguished oratory which he exerted in his own country as an advocate in the court of session and a ruling elder of the kirk has had its fame and ample reward in much higher spheres when i look back on this noble person at edinburgh in situation so unworthy of his brilliant powers and behold lord loughborough at london the change seems almost like one of the metamorphoses in ovid and as his two preceptors by refining his utterance gave currency to his talents we may say in the words of that poet nam vos mutastis in nova fert animus mutatas dicere formas corpora di coeptis nam vos mutastis et ilas ad sperate meis of bodies changed to various forms i sing 
ye gods from whence these miracles did spring inspired etc dryden ovid's metamorphoses book one line one end of footnote lord loughborough itart fifty four i have dwelt the longer upon this remarkable instance of successful parts and assiduity because it affords animating encouragement to other gentlemen of north britain to try their fortunes in the southern part of the island where they may hope to gratify their utmost ambition and now that we are one people by the union it would surely be illiberal to maintain that they have not an equal title with the natives of any other part of his majesty's dominions sheridan's attack on johnson anno domini seventeen sixty three johnson complained that a man who disliked him repeated his sarcasm to mr sheridan without telling him what followed which was that after a pause he added however i am glad that mr sheridan has a pension for he is a very good man sheridan could never forgive this hasty contemptuous expression it rankled in his mind and though i informed him of all that johnson said and that he will be very glad to meet him amicably he positively declined repeated offers which i made and once went off abruptly from a house where he and i were engaged to dine because he was told that dr johnson was to be there Footnote. See post may the seventeenth seventeen eighty three and june the twenty fourth seventeen eighty four sheridan was not of a forgiving nature for some years he would not speak to his famous son yet he went with his daughters to the theatre to see one of his pieces performed the son took up his station by one of the side scenes opposite to the box where they sat and there continued unobserved to look at them during the greater part of the night on his return home he burst into tears and owned how deeply it had gone to his heart to think that there sat his father and his sisters before him and yet that he alone was not permitted to go near them moore's sheridan volume one page one six seven end footnote i have no sympathetic feeling with such persevering resentment it is painful when there is a breach between those who have lived together socially and cordially and i wonder that there is not in all such cases a mutual wish that it should be healed i could perceive that mr sheridan was by no means satisfied with johnson's acknowledging him to be a good man as johnson himself said men hate more steadily than they love and if i have said something to hurt a man once i shall not get the better of this by saying many things to please him post september the fifteenth seventeen seventy seven end of footnote that could not soothe his injured vanity I could not but smile at the same time that i was offended to observe sheridan in the life of swift footnote page four four seven boswell there is another writer at present of gigantic fame in these days of little men 
who has pretended to scratch out a life of Swift, but so miserably executed, as only to reflect back on himself that disgrace which he meant to throw upon the character of the Dean. The Life of Dr. Swift, Swift's Works, 1803, edition, volume 2, page 200. There is a passage in The Lives of the Poets in which Johnson might be supposed, playfully, to have anticipated this attack. He is giving an account of Blackmore's imaginary literary club of lay monks, of which the hero was one Mr. Johnson. The rest of the lay monks, he writes, seem to be but feeble mortals, in comparison with the gigantic Johnson. See also post October the 16th, 1769. Horace Walpole, Letters, Volume 5, page 458, spoke no less scornfully than Sheridan of Johnson and his contemporaries. On April the 27th, 1773, after saying that he should like to be intimate with Anstey, the author of the New Bath Guide, or with the author of the Heroic Epistle, he continues, I have no thirst to know the rest of my contemporaries, from the absurd bombast of Dr. Johnson down to the silly Dr. Goldsmith, though the latter changeling has had bright gleams of parts, and the former had sense, till he changed it for words and sold it for a pension. Don't think me scornful. Recollect that I have seen Pope and lived with Gray. End of footnote. To observe Sheridan in the life of Swift, which he afterwards published, attempting in the writhings of his resentment to depreciate Johnson by characterising him as a writer of gigantic fame in these days of little men. That very Johnson, whom he once so highly admired and venerated. End of section 47